Well, it's great to be here today. Appreciate very much your presence. I want to thank you, Charles, for your prayer on my behalf, and I hope that I can have something to say this morning that would be helpful to you in some way. Um, I've had an excellent song service, and if I was you, I'd rather keep singing than listening to me, but I'll do my best to, to make it worth your while this morning. We're going to continue a series in the book of Galatians, the gospel in Galatians, um, to talk about what Paul has to say about the truth of the gospel and the way that it works in our lives. As we've talked about before, the letter to the churches in the region of Galatia is an impassioned plea from Paul to them about staying true to the gospel. There were a group of people called, that we call the Judaizers, who were coming in and following up Paul and spreading false doctrine, uh, discrediting Paul's authenticity as an apostle, telling the people there that they, if they wanted to be real Christians, they had to follow parts of the law of Moses. And so Paul's letter to them is to stay true to the gospel. And if you want a, sort of a nutshell of encapsulation, if you will, of what the gospel or what the book of Galatians is about, he says in Galatians 1 and 6, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel. He says, there's not another gospel. It's only perversions of the truth. And then he says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. So this is Paul's message sort of encapsulated, if you will, with these two passages overall. We talked in part one about the one and only gospel and how Paul had to defend his apostleship to show that he had the authority to teach the truth. And the gospel he preached to them, he received not from man, but he received it from God and how he was giving that to them by revelation of Jesus Christ. He talked about how it was the only gospel. He said, if an angel or from heaven or any other man preached to you a gospel than what we taught you, let him be accursed. And then we talked about why obedience matters and how the role that obedience plays within the gospel is not uh, the cause of our salvation, but rather the result of it. In part two, we talked about being crucified with Christ. And as, as Paul confronted Peter in Antioch about his behavior, hypocritical behavior concerning the, the Gentiles that were there, and talked about how they weren't being straightforward about the truth of the gospel, we talk about the truth of the gospel reveals to us certain things, the nature of the gospel and what that means. If we're crucified with Christ, we understand the perpetual nature of the gospel, how it's not just a one and done thing, but our, the gospel continues to work in our lives after our baptism. We talked about how the gospel is transformative in nature. It makes us into different people. It took Paul, who was a man who persecuted the church, and turned him into a man who was the church's greatest champion. And then we talked about the certain nature of the gospel, and the fact that when our faith is based in Jesus Christ, a man who was perfect and sinless and gave himself for us, that our confidence is assured in our salvation because of that. So as we move on to part three this morning, I want to talk about being children of faith and children of promise. Having dealt with these issues of the truth of the gospel, at least to a degree, and having uh, talked about being crucified with Christ, Paul wants to dig a little bit deeper into the concept of being justified by faith, and he does that by going to Abraham and using the example there. So talking about justified by faith, you know, I find it interesting that Paul uses Abraham because he's talking to Gentiles who at this point were probably familiar with Abraham to a degree, but they weren't invested in Abraham like the Jews would have been. We see from uh, Jesus's interactions with the Pharisees when he talked about Abraham or when he elevated himself above Abraham to a degree that made them very angry because they had a great deal of respect and reverence for Abraham. Uh, so as Paul's dealing with the Gentiles, they wouldn't have been quite as reverential, if you will. But I think what he's trying to show them is that the Jews' own history 
that they should have known and understood, dealt with this subject of justification by faith, dealt with the subject that he's trying to teach them about. So he says in in Galatians 3, verse 5, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So first of all, this concept of justification by faith, it wasn't a new thing. It wasn't some sort of afterthought that God had. It goes all the way back to Abraham. Just as Abraham was justified by faith, he says, he believed God and it was accounted to him to righteousness. I told Danny this morning, I almost called him to borrow his slide on the the watch gears he's been using in the book of Romans because there's so many concepts here that we just don't have time to get into, but I do wanna address this one when we think about God's plan for salvation and our relationship with him, it works like those watch gears. They all have to work together in order to function correctly. Some of those God is responsible for and those never fail. Some we're responsible for and sometimes we do fail in those. But when we talk about this concept of being justified by faith, what do we mean when we say faith? What did it mean that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness? If you were here last week, Justin talked in the book of James chapter two And he talked about this very thing in great detail, so I don't want to rehash all that, but I do want to mention it because a lot of people want to take this concept of justified by faith and abuse the grace of God and say that our salvation comes only from believing in Jesus. It comes from nothing else. We have no part to play in it. We have no response. But what James says in James 2.21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? So we're using the term justified by faith, and now James is saying he was justified by works. Are we talking about two different things here? Well, we're not. We're talking about the same thing, just phrasing it differently. And so he says, do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him to righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. How do we know that Abraham believed God? Well, because he did what God told him to do. He said, go offer your son Isaac, on the cross. And if it was all about simply just believing God, what Abraham could have said, well, God, I believe you. I know, this, I know your promise. You're going to fulfill your promise. I know you could raise Isaac from the dead if you wanted to. I understand all that. I believe. I'm not going to do this, though. What would have happened? Well, we don't really know for sure, but we know that probably things wouldn't have worked out quite the same. Abraham believed God. We know he believed him because he obeyed God. He did what he told him to do, and that's how faith works. So when we talk about justification by faith, that's included in that whole process. Now, back to Galatians chapter three. Verse eight says, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all nations shall be blessed. Then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So another concept that shouldn't have been new to the Jews was the concept that the Gentiles would be justified. They had spent so long under the law of Moses as God's chosen people that they seemed to forget their own history. When God made the promise to Abraham, he was promising the salvation of all nations, all families of the earth, not just the nation of Israel. And so this shouldn't have been a new concept to them either. And that's what he's saying. When God made the promise to Abraham that in you all nations shall be blessed, he was preaching the gospel in essence to Abraham. He was promising the coming of Christ the gospel that would save us through faith. Verse number 10, he says, as many, of, as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue 
in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So what he's saying here is, if you're going to cling to the law of Moses, like these Judaizers are trying to get you to cling to it, if you're going to be under that, if you're under the works of the law, you're under a curse. Why is that? Because no one can keep the law perfectly. If they could keep it perfectly, maybe, but they can't. That's why we need Jesus. And he said, curse is everyone who does not continue in the things which are written. You can't keep the law of Moses perfectly. Therefore, you're under a curse. And he says in verse 11, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. We can't be justified by the law because we can't do it perfectly. That's the only way to do it. That's why we needed Jesus. And he says in verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Jesus bore the penalty of the law. He took that curse away. That curse that says live this way under the law or you'll be cursed He took that curse away. He took that curse on himself, being perfect and pure, the spotless lamb of God. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Verse 14, he says that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This is important, and this is a concept you're gonna see all the way through the book of Galatians. Because he says, it's important that we separate salvation from the law for this reason. Because when you don't do that, you limit salvation to only the nation of Israel. Because no matter how much anyone else could say, oh, I'll follow the law of Moses, the covenant was not made with anyone except the nation of Israel. We're going to hit more on that later. But that's why he says that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. Because if it's under the law, only the Jews have access to the law. And even for them, it doesn't matter because they can't keep it perfectly. It's all based on a changeless promise that God made to Abraham. That's what all of this stems from. Paul gives us assurance here that the gospel of Jesus and our salvation through faith in it, it doesn't come from the law of Moses. It comes from a changeless promise that God made to Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3, again, verse 15, he says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. So he's talking about, in essence here, contracts. And I know there's, we say there's differences between a contract and a covenant. A covenant is stronger and all that. Taking all that for granted, what he's talking about here is a contract, a man-made contract. He said, when two people get together and make a covenant, make a contract, you know, if it's confirmed, that's hard to change. And we understand that with contracts today. Just try getting out of a cell phone contract with AT&T or Verizon or somebody. You know, in my job, We have business relationships with third-party vendors who provide different products and services. And if we enter into a contract with those companies to obtain their products and services, we have to stick to the terms of that contract. So if I make a five-year deal for a a new uh, software core, and we're going to do business with you for five years, we we can't two and a half years later can't say, well, we changed our mind. Not without paying some sort of penalty, usually in the form of thousands of dollars hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases. So we understand about breaking contracts. It's hard to do. And so what Paul is saying there, how much more with a promise that God made? If it's hard enough to change a contract or covenant that two men make together, how hard hard is it, do you think, to break a contract that God has made? And so he says in verse 16, to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made. He does not say into seeds as of many, but as of one to your seed who is Christ. So he's reinforcing this idea of, number one, God made a promise. He made a covenant with Abraham. And if it's hard to break a man-made covenant, how much harder do you think it is for, 
to break a, a covenant or promise that God made. And remember, this promise is all about Jesus. The promise wasn't into his seeds, which means the nation of Israel alone, but to his seed, which is Christ. He's talking about the gospel. Now, I want to go over to Hebrews chapter 13 because what, what we find here is that God doubled down on his promise when he made that promise to Abraham. Listen carefully to what he says here in Hebrews chapter 6. He says, When God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise for men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. So he's continuing this thought of the covenant or the contract. But what he says is when God made the promise to Abraham, he, did, he didn't just make a promise, which in and of itself should have been enough. But he says he swore an oath on the promise. You know, and, and when we think about, you know, swearing an oath, I, my mind goes to a courtroom. You know, when, we, when you're under oath to tell the truth, you put your used to would put your hand on a Bible and raise your right hand. And what are you doing? You're swearing by something greater than yourself. You're giving weight to the testimony that you're about to provide. And so we understand that. Well, God, having no one greater to swear upon, swore upon himself. And so what did he do? He doubled down on his promise. Now, when God makes a promise, you can take that to the bank. When God makes a promise, there should be no need for an oath. It should be, I promise, and that's going to happen, and it will. But what if, look at verse 17 and what it says. Thus God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. What are you saying? God was determined. He wanted the heirs of the promise. That's you and I. He wanted us to know just how unchangeable this promise was he made to Abraham. He wanted to double down on that promise. And so what did he do? By two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong, he confirmed it with an oath. He said, Abraham, I promise you that all nations of the earth will be blessed through you. I promise that. And I'm swearing an oath to you that I will keep that promise. One should have been enough, but he doubled, he, because he wanted to show abundantly, above and beyond. He wanted there to be no doubts that he would keep that promise. It's impossible for God to lie. And so the two immutable things, the fact that he made the promise and that he swore by an oath to keep that promise, you and I therefore have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold for the hope that is set before us. A changeless promise. Verse 17, and this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. So here's what he's saying. Listen, God made this unchangeable promise to Abraham, and he made it 430 years before the law was even given to Israel. The age of this nation is... 245? That's crazy. 430 years later, and he said, and so therefore, that law can't annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. It doesn't make the promise of no effect. It doesn't change the promise. It doesn't add to the promise. It doesn't do that. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So if you're clinging to the fact that your inheritance is of the law, then the promise that God made to Abraham means nothing to you. That's what he's saying here. We talked a lot in this series about the similarity between what Paul teaches in Galatians and what he teaches in Romans. 
And just to show the nature of that, in Romans chapter four, he says the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham to his, and to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. He's saying the same thing. The promise wasn't made through the law. It was through the righteousness of faith. Those are of the law are heirs. Faith is made void. If those are of the law of heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. He's saying the same thing here to the Romans that he says to the Galatians. If, you're, if your hope and trust is made based in the law, then the promise that God made to Abraham is no effect. Therefore, he says in verse 16, there it is, therefore it is a faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not just Israel, but to all the seed, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So there we see this justification by faith, not a new concept. Gentiles being justified, not a new concept. And it's all based on the changeless promise that God made to Abraham. And now I guess there's sort of this elephant in the room that Paul feels like he needs to address. Because you can imagine, you can imagine it more if he's talking to Jews. Well, then what's the purpose of the law? You spend all this time talking to these Gentiles about understand the law isn't where your faith and hope and trust is. It's based on the changeless promise that God made. If that's the case, then why did God even give the law? It's a valid question. You know, he answers the same question in Romans and he does it here too. What is the purpose of the law? He says, what purpose then does the law serve? Well, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. So what he's saying here is the law served the purpose of being a magnifying glass, a spotlight, if you will, on the sins of Israel. It was added because of transgression. Transgression is sin. And so it was added just to show how much sin there was in their lives. That was the point of that. He said in Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. The law pointed out their sin. And that's one reason the law existed, to show just how much they couldn't do this on their own, just how much they needed a Savior. It highlighted, it, it shone a light on their sinful nature. Now, the second part of verse 19 and verse 20 are a little complicated, and it's a little cryptic in its nature, and I want you to know that because I spent a lot of time wrestling with this. I spent a lot of time uh, talking to, to brethren, and I spent a lot of time looking at a bunch of commentaries. There were some commentators that just said, we don't really know what this means, and I'm not going to talk about it. One, comment one commentary I looked at went from verse 19 to verse 21, didn't even address it at all. One said, well, it may mean this, it may mean that, it doesn't really matter. I don't want to do that this morning, because I think all the scriptures matter. And when, I think when you take this in context, it's not too hard to understand. And that is, when he says in verse 19 that the law was added because of transgression, he says it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So he's talking about Moses here. The law was appointed by angels to the hands of a mediator. Moses was the mediator between God and Israel. He stood between them and he mediated. What does a mediator do? Well, he stands between two parties and he represents both parties. And so Moses represented God to the nation of Israel and Moses represented Israel to God. He stood between them. He was the mediator. And so where it gets complicated, he says, now a mediator does not mediate for only one. There has to be two parties. If you're only representing one party, then you're a lawyer, not a mediator. And where it gets complicated is when he says, but God is one. But remember what we're talking about here. We're highlighting the differences between the promise that God made to Abraham 
and the law of Moses. What's the difference between the two? So let's go to Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So God says, okay, Moses, here's my law. Here's my words. If the nation of Israel keeps this, they obey my voice, they keep my covenant, then I will bless them. They'll be a special treasure to me. They'll be my people. So what does Moses do? So Moses came and called for the elders of the people, laid before them all the words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought the words of the Lord back to the people. Moses is going back and forth here. God said, Moses, here's my law. Take it to the people. He said, okay, people, here's the law. What do you want to do? They said, we'll keep it. We'll do it. We agree to this covenant. Moses went back to God and said, okay, they agree. He was being mediator. But notice something else about this. This was a provisional covenant. What do we mean by a provisional covenant? Well, God was saying, provided that you keep my, my word, obey my voice, I will bless you. And we see that all throughout Israel's history. Think of them at the height of their power and glory, Israel, under Solomon. They were so blessed and so rich that silver was on the, just like it was rocks on the ground. They had so much. Why? Because they had been following after God. And Solomon, at the end of his life, started going away from God, and all the kings that followed him, or at least most of them, turned away from God. What happened? When they turned away from God, God withdrew his blessing. When they turned back to God, he restored the blessing. And so we see this was a provisional covenant. So the things about the law of Moses, it was a provisional, it was based on conditions, and there was a mediator between God and Israel. Now, what about the promise? Genesis chapter 12, verse one. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you see the word if anywhere in this passage? I don't. Because this is an unconditional promise. Now, that is not to say that the gospel is without condition, that our salvation is without condition. All this means is when God promised to Abraham, I'm going to save all the families of the earth through your seed, that was an unconditional promise. And there was no mediator because there was no two parties. It was simply God speaking to Abraham. Abraham, I'm making you this promise. I'm swearing on myself. One day, all nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And I believe in a very cryptic way, that's exactly what Paul is telling the Galatians there. No mediation, no conditions. God made a promise, and it's an unchanging promise. Back to the law and its relationship to the promise. He says in verse Galatians 3.21, is the law then against the promises of God? So are you talking against what God promised? No, it doesn't. It works alongside that. He says, certainly not. If there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. So he said, the law itself is fine. The law itself is perfect. And if you could have righteousness by any law, it would be the law of Moses, but you can't do it. And so it says, the scriptures has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. So verse three gives us another clue, or excuse me, verse 23 gives us another clue about why the law was given to Israel. He says, before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, 
kept for the faith which should afterward be revealed. So what he's saying here is not only did the law spotlight and magnify sin to show us our need for Christ, but it also sort of just pointed us in the right direction. It showed us this is what God wants you to be like. As a nation, as the nation of Israel, this is what God wants you to behave like. And this is the direction you need to be heading in. And so we were kept under guard by that. We were kept restricted by the law to keep us from straying too far away from God. So that's another purpose of the law. And then he says in verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So we all know what a tutor is. If you're having problems with math or, or science or any other subject in school, what do you do? You go to a tutor and they give you special training. They guide you in the direction that you need to go. But you know, 30 years later, when you're on the job and you've forgotten how to do the math you did in high school, you don't call up your tutor and say, hey, how do I do this? You're no longer under a tutor. And so the law of Moses guided us, guided Israel rather, to Jesus. And it did that by placing shadows of him within the law. Shadows of Christ, shadows of the gospel, shadows of the cross, shadows of the church. You can find it all throughout the law of Moses. And the book of Hebrews goes into that in greater detail. We just don't have time to do that this morning. But Colossians chapter two, verse 16 says, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So all these things we see in the law of Moses, they point to Christ. They point to the gospel, they point to the church, but they're not the true thing. And so the law, what purpose did it serve? Well, it highlighted and magnified our sin. It showed us our need for Christ. It pointed us in the right direction and it pointed towards Christ. So as we examine these, these passages this morning, I hope that you have a better idea of what Paul is trying to say, understanding what it means to be a child of faith, a child of promise. The justification comes from faith in Jesus and not the law of Moses. That the gospel of Jesus was promised to Abraham 430 years before the law was given to Israel by the hand of Moses. And therefore, it is for all nations, not just Israel, not just God's chosen people at that time, but it's for all nations, all families of the earth will be blessed. The law was added to spotlight sin and the need for Jesus and to lead us to him. What an amazing blessing we have to know that our salvation is not contingent upon our ability to perfectly adhere to the law of Moses. Rather, our salvation is based on an unchanging promise that God made to Abraham, that all nations of the earth would be blessed through Jesus Christ. Paul concludes Galatians chapter three with these words. You are all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All the stuff we just talked about, what's that makes us? That makes us the children of God, the sons of God through Jesus Christ. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so he's telling you, you've been baptized into Christ. If you've done that, you've put on Christ. You're in him. And there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Doesn't matter your background. If you're in Christ, he says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. To have faith in Jesus and to be obedient to the gospel means that no matter who you are, where you come from, you're his. And your heirs not according to the law, your heirs according to the unchanging promise that God made to Abraham. Have you taken those steps today? Have you been obedient to the gospel? 
As many of us have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Have you put on Christ this morning? There's no better opportunity than right now, today, to take hold of eternal life, to accept the offer of grace that's been given to you. If you're willing to repent of your sins and confess Jesus as the Son of God and be buried with him in baptism, do that today. Don't wait another day. If you have been a child of promise, but maybe for whatever reason you've slipped away or you have problems in your life, you need encouragement, you need strength, we're willing to pray with you, we're willing to pray for you, please come have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.